So we are jumping into a text that is just, there's no two ways about it. It's, it's, remember that old, is it an old 80s song? Let's talk about sex, baby. I don't know if you guys remember, you've heard of it. But that's, I could have, I could have titled the sermon that. It would have been appropriate for this text this morning. You can't sidestep it if you're gonna preach the text, which we do. This is the word of God. It's good. It's straightforward though, and almost scandalous. So gird your loins, um, and if there are any kids in the, in the place that don't need to be, it's not, they're not quite ready, then yeah, uh, maybe, maybe check them into our wonderful Sojourn Kids program. Um, so Paul, if you thought in the weeks previous since we were taught, Paul was like, hey, church at Corinth, you're a mess. Corinth, in short, is much like Houston, okay, is today, full of all sorts of stuff. One of the things was just sexual perversions, and the church was being infected, being more informed by the culture than by Christ himself and God's word. And so Paul's been like railing against prostitution, railing against there's a guy in the church committing incest, and they're sort of like proud of it and applauding him, and there's all sorts of sexual perversion. So he gets to the place where in a previous letter from them, they've said, so should we just basically, this is verse one, right? Should we just basically stop, is sex bad? Should we just, no sex, right? Sex is bad, it's not from the Lord. And he just says, he disabuses them of that most severely. It's almost scandalous the way he encourages married couples to get it on, all right? And we're gonna get into that, and I'm, I'm hoping to make it, to put handles on it and to make it as practical as he does. He's severely practical. So the first point is just jumping right in, marriage and sex. Um, verses one through five, marriage and sex. If you're married, schedule sex. That's sort of the subtitle. If you miss everything in this first point, get that. If you're married, Paul's basically saying, Schedule it. It's that important within your marriage. It's sort of the glue that keeps you coming back and holds you together. Okay, not maybe not the most important thing, but man, it's important. So he gives us some. He gives the church at Corinth and us through them some, um, just some straightforward advice and command. All right. So again, to give sex to the devil, which is basically what they've done. The Lord doesn't approve of sex. It's not the Lord's. It's unholy. It's un. It's not good. Is to lose immediately. And the church at Corinth. Um, they've basically given sex to the devil ra- rather than realizing God made the body, God made stuff, he made creation, he made the pleasure organs, he made sex, it's his idea. He made marriage, it's his idea. And, se- and children come from sex and he loves sex in the right way, which is between a man and a woman, it's his. And what, see God's not approved, Satan's approved. Satan hates the body. And if sex within marriage between a man and a woman is a Rembrandt or a Turner, an oil on canvas that's just a masterpiece, and it is. What Satan wants to do is take a knife to it and just take, it, take a knife through the entire canvas and rip it up. And so there are all sorts of sexual perversions they abound. Sex is real and it's powerful. And anytime you have something real and powerful like fire, it can be abused. Fire can burn stuff down. But it can also cook food, provide warmth, fuel things, and so on and so forth in the right place. And so, but unicorns, they aren't dangerous. They can't be abused because they're, they're not real. So sex is real, it's powerful, it's to be used in the right way. And Satan just wants, wants it to be used in all sorts of wrong ways, okay? So God's not against sex. In fact, he's for it. And within marriage, Paul tells us, here's some, here's some of the things that I want you to do. Um, the first thing right off, verse two, he says, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And I wanted to say, if more Christians took this more seriously, we'd have more marriage. I and mean, it's not romantic advice at all. Like, you burn with, verse nine, he says it again. You burn with lust, maybe you need to get married, <laughs> you know? We have recourse to, again, perversions of various natures, to pornography, um, to um, sex outside of, of marriage, to, um, there's abortion 
there's all sorts of contraception, which Robin and I, she said, she's so scared. She's like, man, I wish I were in kids this week. I have a tendency to overshare, and so I'm gonna share some of the things that have worked for us. She's so scared. Again, she took me, she took me aside before I started. She's like, again, I know I'm gonna overshare. I'm trying, babe. Love you. Um, but this is my family, man. We gotta, we gotta help them with the word of God, baby. Um, but, oh, Lord, somebody said, oh, dear. Yeah. Um, but, man, if we would, instead of, instead of uh, quenching our lust in ways that the Lord don't glorify God and that don't produce life and aren't the ways that he's intended, if we would say, man, I am burning with lust and there's a woman that I like to marry and that's the only way it's going to be satisfied and Lord has provided recourse within marriage for it to be satisfied in a very good way, we would marry more often and earlier. But as it is, we pushed off marriage in part because as a culture, we have all these other unholy outlets. And so um, it, Paul is not being romantic here. Do you burn with lust? Get married. That's not, you know, that's, that's, that's not marriage advice that you hear. But he is eminently practical. And I think his anthropology, his understanding of humanity is really wise. And we'll dig into that. So there's a scene from Brother, Son, Sister Moon, a wonderful movie by Franco Zeffirelli in the 70s, I think, about the life of St. Francis of Assisi, 13th century, I believe, Italian um, saint, believer, who was sort of one of the precursors to the Reformation, I think. And he, uh, within the Roman Catholic Church, what he and his followers were committed to a life of celibacy. And the Roman Catholic Church priests still are to this, to this day, and that's been an issue, and I'll bring that up in a second. Well, I think I was just gonna say, when you repress sex in ways God never intended, and I think that the whole priest can't have sex in the Roman Catholic Church thing is an example of that. Look at the perversions and the, and the things that are caused. You, if, you, if you keep a water spout from flowing as it should flow, eventually it's gonna, it's gonna blow out in various ways, okay? And that's what's happened, I think, in the Roman Catholic priesthood in various ways, and either way. So St. Francis of Assisi, he's got this band of followers, this cadre of men, and there's this touching scene where one of his men, they're in the city, and he sees a woman uh, through, through, her, um, through the window of her house and she's like kneading bread or something and he's just, he feels what Paul's saying here. He's fighting the temptation to lust and he wants to be with a woman and he's castigating himself and, and Francis just lays his hand on his shoulder gently and he says, brother, if you wanna marry, this isn't for everybody. If you wanna marry, it's a good thing, marry. And so the guy gets married and he's freed up to do that. It's a wonderful scene. Um, and that's really what Jesus says. He says something similar and in uh, Matthew 19, 12, he says basically that committing yourself to a life of singleness or celibacy is something that is highly praised, and Paul gets into that in this next week, this next text that I'm gonna preach next week. Um, he touches on it in verses six through 10 here, which is our short point too. Um, but Jesus basically says that's for some, it's not for everyone. It's to be highly commended, but marriage is a good thing. And, and, um, and so, so that's the position. Um, verse four, we get in, first, verses four and five are just so blunt, straightforward, and almost scandalous, and they're wonderful. Verse four, um, Paul's basically saying, look, the husband has no rights to his body, but the wife does. And the wife has no right, but he starts with, hey, husband, you have, you have no rights to your body. It's, that's, that's the wife's, She's, you're, you're hers. And in this culture, I mean, he starts off by telling the husband that you have no rights to yourself, it's your wife's. She owns you. That is so freeing and so far ahead of its time. As always, the Bible is way ahead of its time and we're just starting to catch up. This is huge women's rights, you know? Paul's saying, look, 
husband, you have no rights. Your wife has rights over you. And then he, but then he reciprocates, and he's more balanced than our culture. The women's lib would stop there, but he says, women, you, married women, you have absolute right to your husband. Husband, you're not your own. You belong to your wife. But then he reciprocates, and he says the same thing to wives. And so um, the Bible is so ahead of its time, and um, really this is touching on, remember Paul is coming from focusing on union with Christ. He's telling this church in Corinth, you have been united to Christ. And what he's saying under all this is that we are not our own. We are Christ's, and marriage is a picture of the fact that we are not our own. We give ourselves in love to the other. And that's what, when you boil it down, that's what sex was designed to be. Not a self-taking, but a self-giving. And when it becomes a self-taking, Keller, Tim Keller uses, he's a preacher in New York, he uses the word monstrosity. Becomes a monstrosity because it's more than body, it's body and soul becoming one. And when we are giving ourselves in expression of that within marriage in the right way, it's just this beautiful act of worship, worshiping the living God, an expression, a shadow of our greater union with Christ. That's what it's for. And so, but Paul in verse three, he says, the husband must give to his wife the, it's a contractual word, the debt that he owes her. Wow, and he's talking about, he's talking about sex. Okay, that's, and, and uh, so the men are like, no problem, you know, and uh, a lot of the men in here. Um, but he says the same thing to the wife. We owe it to one another um, to be having regular sex, okay? Um, and he says in verse five, straight out, don't deprive one another sexually, except for a limited time. If you need to fast and pray, the devil doesn't get a foothold, but only for a limited time and then come back together again. Men, as the head, as the leader, make sure that it's scheduled, limited, and then come back together, okay? Because what? Satan, he is tempting us in all, especially in this oversexed culture, he's tempting us in so many ways. I mean, we're bombarded by visual images and skin from every corner of our lives. And so sex is a way to, within marriage, is a way to fight that well. And God's given us that weapon and we need to avail ourselves of it. Um, it's a wonderful weapon in the arsenal God's given us to fight. So I wanna say just a few practical things before moving on to point two briefly on this. Um, so this is a divine command for neither of us to hold out on the other. And I know that a lot of times we men, in fact, I could just say all of us, all men, abuse the power that we've been given in marriage at some point. I do it more often than I'd like to admit. And we can do it by demanding sex. And we, we won't typically say, I demand sex. You know that's not gonna work for you, you know? But you can abuse, you can abuse even the biblical injunctions to say, don't, hey, Paul said don't deprive each other, you know? But there's a healthy way to, to insist together on that, to respect that, to respect one another. Um, but because we can abuse our position, a lot of times the wife says, man, well, I can't control a lot of things in this marriage, but one thing I can control is I'm not giving it up. And so what one of the things Paul is saying is, and for the men, usually, not always, not as much of a problem, because I mean, it doesn't take much for me to be, hey, let's go, babe. You know, I'm trying to, sorry, babe, I'm trying to, I'm trying to keep it cool, but uh, I'll probably never be like, I'm withholding from you, babe. That's just not gonna happen, okay? But I think the temptation for the woman, the temptation for the man because of the garden is to be passive and not to schedule and not to keep pursuing in love and giving himself to the wife, right? That's what sex is. The temptation for the woman is gonna be to control and this is one way the woman can control. You're not getting any. And Paul says, 
command of the Lord. Don't do that. Now, as soon as I say that, what do I get into? I get into some of us are one in three men, one in one in three women, one in five men, the stats say, victims of sexual abuse. Perhaps some of us are perpetrators of sexual abuse. It's messy. There's stuff in there. You know, humans and human sin, very complicated. And so if, if that is some of the reality you're wrestling with when you hear don't deprive each other and give yourself to without restraint your spouse, then all of a sudden some of that abuse comes up to the surface. We, we have counselors here. We have Ray. We have Anna, professionally trained counselors and believers. I'm, I'm here. I'm your pastor. We have others. We want to avail ourselves. We, we understand that. So we want to work with you. We want to pray with you. We want to love. We want to take you and your complexity and your past seriously. But we also want to take the command of the Lord seriously. So husbands, don't, this is to husbands. Don't lord it over your wives. Romance them. Uh, so Robin is wonderful. When it comes to all this, she submits to me. She loves me. She offers herself to me. Uh, it, it helps me a ton, I'm not gonna lie. I'm just gonna be honest. And this is a just gloves off, straight, on, straight up honest sermon. It helps me a ton to fight. But I was taken advantage recently. A couple months ago, we went through a phase for over a month where I was just, she was kinda, she never really says no, and we'll get into that in a bit, which is great. But she kinda was saying no some, like on a regular basis, and I started getting kinda in a hissy fit a little bit about it, like feeling sorry for myself. But she kept reminding me, and maybe at one point she just said, she's like, look, I understand what you need and I want to give myself to you, but I feel she was feeling used because sex, what, well, one of the things it requires is it requires an understanding. I mean, I can have sex at any point with Robin at any time, even if she's just ticked me off, let's go, you know, but for the woman, we're made differently. God made us differently and they have, they, things have to be right. They have to be right. And that's one of the things sex, regular sex does is it keeps you, it forces you to keep short accounts. That's one of the reasons Paul's saying this. It forces you to keep short accounts, to be honest with each other, to work through stuff, and there's always stuff, and to respect each other. And, if I, and I was using her. As her head, as her husband in marriage, I was still using her by basically demanding something without giving her what she needed during the day. And that was one thing, because we have regular sex, that we were able to talk through. And so that's one of the reasons Paul uh, says this. So good sex and regular sex and scheduled sex leads to um, keeping short accounts and having meaningful connection and a richness and a texture in your marriage. So um, that's that, okay? Now, so Gordon Fee, uh, a great commentator, he says, the emphasis in this text is not on uh, you owe me, you're saying to the spouse, hey, you owe me, but rather I owe you and I'm here to serve you. I'm here to serve you, babe. Sorry. Um, so, uh, and so Paul, and also we have to remember the context, right? Chapter seven, haha, <laughs> that's not gonna stop, sorry, for the next 20 minutes. Um, we have to remember the context of this, this is chapter seven, it's in a letter. Chapter six, um, Paul, fin- how does he finish chapter six? There are no chapter divisions in the Greek text. He finishes by saying, and he finishes this chapter by saying, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Again, marriage is a picture of our not being our own, but being bought by Christ. And marriage is a picture of how now I belong to another, Robin, and Robin belongs to me. And that ought to be a picture to the church, to our children, and to a watching world of the beauty of oneness in Christ and of mutual self-sacrifice. And let me tell you, friends, for those of you that uh, aren't married, for those of you that haven't um, engaged sexually, 
when you are married and when you are, uh, when sex is something that is really, hey, sometimes it's just passionate. It's almost always passionate eventually, but, some, but when you are giving of yourself and serving and you know that that's happening, it is the richest, most beautiful and that's and you just know, man, it's like when you hit that ball in the sweet spot and it goes straight and it goes far. It's like that is what it's made for. That's what is supposed to happen. Um, so husbands, again, I want to encourage you, exhort you. If you're not pursuing your wife and romancing her um, like you did when you were courting her, um, then you are lying to her. I want to quote from Benjamin Palmer. He's an old 19th century um, Southern Presbyterian preacher. He says in a book, in a book called The Family, which is his sermons, on the family, he says, the obtrusive, sort of older, antiquated language, but stay with me, the obtrusive attentions of courtship. We all, men, we all, when we courted our wives and, and wanted to get them to the place where they would say, I do, and get them married, get them to the altar, we, we, they, we were obtrusively attending to them. The obtru- obtrusive attentions of courtship were accepted by the woman as evidences of love that would never know abatement. Man, when you won your wife like you did, it's an implicit promise to her that you're gonna keep treating her like that. And when you stop just because you got married or tired in marriage, you are basically lying to her. The things, the the vows that you took with her and that you made at the altar and that you made previous leading up to the altar, you are breaking. And I have broken. And what Robin says is, she says, be the man that you were when you courted her, man. And man, if I'm not guilty of not being that man so often, am I trying to romance Robin? Am I serving her? Am I pouring myself out for her? Am I writing her poetry and giving her like fruit and donuts like I used to do? Why fruit and donuts? I don't know, but it happened, okay? Um, no, guilty, but we need to be. And regular sex is sort of, it's a reminder of that as, as, as of so much else, okay? Um, it keeps the romance going. It keeps us pursuing. Um, it keeps us having short accounts. So one of the best things we did, and this is one of the things Robin warned me of, don't be too explicit, but um, so you can thank her later. One of the things that we did, we lived in Scotland for four years. One of the best things we did for our marriage, we just realized we were, I was working on a doctorate and we had part-time jobs and we had kids. There was just a lot going on, as each of you have a lot going on, right? We'd realize, we'd look up, it'd be three or four weeks we hadn't had sex. Tendency to passivity. I'm not initiating. I'm not taking this command seriously. Don't deprive each other, except for a time, limited time, and then come back together, lest the devil tempt you. And so what we did is we had a couple best friends of ours over there, and we just said, hey, X times, Robin told me not to share the amount of times, X times per week, okay? We want you, we wanna be having sex at least minimum X times per week. We told them that. We, we understand that we need accountability here, and we under, we're taking this command seriously, and we know it's important, an important aspect in our arsenal for our marriage, for the health of our marriage, to fight things. And so that was one of the best things we did. Every time we sat down, the, the, my friend, the guy, he was just, he's real practical. So every time we sat down, no, no small talk, just like, how are you having sex six times a week? You know what I mean? Just, and sometimes, you know, sometimes, yeah, when we realized we were up against it and then we were meeting with him the next day, hey, you know, it's a crazy night. But it, what it does is, sorry, Robin's like, okay, you're gonna hear later from me. Um, pray for me. Uh, one of the things that does is it's so unromantic, seemingly, but what happens is the, the discipline and the obedience lead to, lead to and help produce the romance. They do. And that's just the way things work. Like, man, um, when you, you never feel like going to the gym, 
I'm not saying you never feel like having sex as a married couple, you do, but, but man, when you do and you keep doing it, it produces a desire to, to keep in shape and to work out more. And when you never go to the gym, you just wanna keep never going to the gym. It's, it, that's the way life works. And Paul knows this, which is why I was saying, I think it's a sophisticated, it's a sophisticated anthropology. He gets the way that we tick. It's important and we prioritize what's important in life, period. We schedule it, we prioritize it. And so that, this is just a practical example Paul, Paul is giving to us here. Um, the fact that sex between a married couple has to be romantic to happen. Get this, and then I'm gonna be moving on shortly to point two. The fact that it has, the thought that it has to be romantic is a lie from the pit. It'll just keep you waiting. It'll keep you waiting. It'll keep you waiting. The romance will, it will follow. And hey, I'm starting to do house visits, y'all. Uh, and if, just get ready. Don't be scandalized. That's gonna be a normal, I'm a soul doctor, all right? That's, that's what I'm called to. Like, that's gonna be no, on my checklist. I might not ask it every time. I'm not gonna ask it every time. But if you're married, I'm gonna be asking you straight up, how's your sex life? Have you, are you, are you consistent about it? Do you have a plan? How's that going? Hey, you ought to be asking each other, not everyone asking everyone, but you ought to have a couple that you are real with, maybe in your parish family, okay? Um, because Satan has us convinced that we can't talk about sex or money, and those are two super important things in life, and God made them both and wants us to use them both for his glory. They're not Satan's, they're the Lord's. And so not talking about them uh, just, just puts them in this sort of untouchable category, and, that, and that, that's unhealthy, Okay, there's also an unhealthy way you can talk about it too much. Don't do that, okay, like I'm doing right now. No, I'm kidding. Hey, it's my job to walk you through this text, and so that's what I'm trying to do. Um, so on the whole, women, the men don't deprive. I might have to tell you that. I don't feel as much of a burden to tell men, don't deprive your wives of sex, but don't, okay, and be the initiator and schedule and do it lovingly in a self-giving way. But women, on the women don't deprive thing, a funny story, we, um, we have some friends, and he's a pastor, and we were all gathered together, a bunch of us, and his wife uh, said to all of us, she's like, hey, ladies, and my wife was not there, sadly, but I've told her this over and over again. The, the, I mean, the, the guys just fell out of their chairs laughing. She said, ladies, don't, don't say no. It only takes five minutes. <laughs> right in front of the guy. It was amazing. It's fantastic. So practical. And hey, they have a healthy marriage, and that's one of the reasons why. Um, that's one of the reasons why. So, okay, it helps, eschew, it helps push away so much evil and it does so much good and it seems like such a small thing, but schedule it. It's that important. Make, a, make it a priority. The romance will follow, I promise you, okay? Second point, marriage and singleness and this talk about marriage for life. Um, marriage and singleness, verses six through nine. In, in short, singleness is preferable to marriage is what Paul's saying. Um, it's what Paul's saying. So remember how I said, his talk to the wives about how like, hey, wives, you own your husband. He owes a debt to you. He's not his own. That's revolutionary in that time. Nobody else was saying that. And Christianity just liberates both men and women in Christ. This is also revolutionary. For Paul in this short bit to say, hey, look, I wish, this is not a command because I would never command you not to be married because marriage is a blessing. But if, you, if you're single now, I would recommend you stay single to focus on the Lord and not be distracted by the many attentions, marriage, and children, if children come, require. Um, but it's, so it's a concession, not a command, but I wish you as I am. So, and for so many reasons, Paul's saying it's preferable. He just touches on it and moves on, so I'm gonna do the same thing in this short, short second point. But next week is mainly about singleness and what a high calling it is and, and how effective it can be for the Lord. 
Hey, marriage can too. Marriage can be totally ineffective for the Lord and totally self-absorbed. Singleness can too. You can just be so focused on yourself, but also marriage and singleness especially. If you are focused on giving yourself to the Lord and you're here as a steward for the living God with everything you have, man, you can do some serious Serious damage for the kingdom. That's what Paul's saying. So um, the fact that he can even recommend marriage over singleness, singleness over marriage is, is mind-blowing, and nobody was saying that at the time. Because the point in this culture, uh, in the Corinthian culture, in the ancient Near Eastern culture uh, of life, essentially, was get married. And for a woman who wasn't married, it was like, what are you doing? But, but Paul blows that up because what? Our identity is rooted in another. It's completed in Christ. You can be a complete human, Paul is saying, and not be married. Evidence? Jesus. Never married. Paul? Never married. Um, they were wholly devoted to the Lord. And yes, as a married couple, we should be as well. But Paul is on, he's real. And he's like, look, you are pulled away focusing on spouse and kids in so many different ways in life if you get married. So singleness is a gift. And he is just straight up about that. Um, the fact is, we, and I'm, and I'm not I'm not saying this is a bad thing. I don't think it is, but it's a real fact. We know so many missionaries, especially when we were in Edinburgh, we knew so many missionaries who they would go to the mission field and then come back, essentially all of them, when their kids got to the age where they needed a good secondary high school and college education. Um, and was that, again, is that a bad thing? No. I mean, we kind of did the same thing, where we wanted to go to India after the doctorate, and we just... It, the doors were closed, so we came back here for a lot of good reasons, and I'm so glad we're here. But part of it was we wanted our kids to know family. We wanted them to be educated here, and we, we're still thinking, like, okay, maybe when they're out of the house one day, we'll go. So that's just, that's just real. That's just real, and that's one of the things Paul's saying here in verses 6 through 10. Okay, so if you're a widow or if you're a single, just stay as you are. And, man, if you're looking for a hook, because 10 through 16, as we sort of get into point three here and then close down, is just all, Paul's giving all sorts of advice to singles, to marrieds, to marrieds who were non-believers when they got married and then they became believers and their spouse is still an unbeliever and we'll get into that as we close. But um, if you just want a banner to put over this sort of married for life thing in this text, Paul is saying, look, stay as you are. You are complete in Christ. And again, um, the recommendation of singleness, it's a concession, not a command but it's a blessing, and we'll get into that more next, next week. So marriage and sanctification is how I've titled this third point, verses 10 through 16, and basically the, the injunction is stay married. If you're married, stay married. If you're married, stay married. Years ago, I sat under a pastor who was preaching a text like this, and he titled it A Marriage That Sizzles, and aside from that just being an embarrassing title, not, I mean, this whole sermon's a bit embarrassing, but so who am I to cast stones, but it was just a bit cheesy, um, I had a wise friend who leaned over to me and she's like, he should have he titled it A Marriage That Sanctifies because it was in the text and that's really, that's really true um, because that's even what the sex is about. When you're giving of yourself in a sexual relationship, um, if you're single, if you're married, um, in whatever Paul is saying here, this could be a, a something, a banner over all of his advice is that marriage is in whatever regard and whatever you're doing, whether taking care of kids, um, having sex, doing anything, cleaning the dishes, whatever you're doing in between, it's for our sanctification. Because it's hard giving of yourself and laying down your rag rights constantly, which is what we're called to, because of who we are in Christ, because of what he's done for us. It's, it hurts. Being crucified hurts. 
dying hurts, but it makes us more like Jesus. And it, again, it pictures Christ in his self-giving to us, to our children, to a watching world. So that's really what, what sex even should be. Um, but so this, um, this section is full of seeming, seemingly uh, disparate advice, but it's bound by that one thing, and that is um, that he's recommending and commanding that we, if we're married, we need to, we, he wants us to stay married with a, possibly a few implicit exceptions. So let me just bounce through this briefly. Um, so in verse 10, he says, not I but the Lord. Um, and he says, not I but the Lord. Let's just go ahead and read it. Um, to the married, I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. Um, that word separate is a word that Jesus uses when he's going back to Genesis, and he says, um, God, has, uh, God has made marriage to be between a man and a woman, and when they come together, they become one flesh, and then he says, what God has joined and made one flesh in marriage, man shouldn't separate. So that's speaking about divorce. So Paul's here saying, look, I'm recommending and I'm commanding that if you are married, don't get divorced, okay? Don't get divorced. Um, it, but then he goes on, okay, so then he goes on and he says to the husbands right after that, I don't know if I read that, I, I don't think I did. Um, he says, verse 11, and the husband should not divorce his wife. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Um, so what's going on here? Why does Paul use, uh, why does Paul say, if he's saying um, that the wife shouldn't divorce her husband or separate from him, and that means divorce, why is he then saying the husband shouldn't divorce his wife? Well, because in Corinth, as here, in Texas, we have a no-fault divorce law, sadly. In Corinth, divorce was super easy. Um, in, the, in this Roman culture, um, literally you could, and the men would be the ones who would do this, you could just dismiss your wife by saying, uh, take your things and go. Take your things and go. Um, and, that, and then that, the divorce was official. She burned your dinner for no reason at all. Whatever it was, take your things and go. And she was out. And so Paul is saying, hey, husbands, don't do that. Take marriage seriously. What God has joined together, let not man separate. But if you're a widow or you're single, he says, I... I want you to remain as you are. Um, and then, so, let's see if I've missed anything here. There's, this is, these are treacherous waters and they're important, so I wanna be able to hit these things accurately. Um, let's keep moving. So I just wanna say that, again, what Paul is saying as he's getting at all this is, in this culture, in Corinth, and in our culture, marriage so often is, is for convenience. It's for convenience. But Paul is, is hitting at something. He's saying, look, this is for holiness. It's, it, happiness isn't the number one thing I should be going after in marriage. Happiness often is a byproduct. And Tim Keller in his book, Meaning of Marriage, has great info, great stats on how if you stay together as a married couple, even when things get hard, and they always will, the stats show that there's greater, almost everything, greater, the stats say greater wealth, greater happiness, greater contentment, um, it's not always the case, but Paul is saying a covenant in marriage is for life, okay? Um, so in sum, Paul div uh, forbids divorce both among Christians and between a Christian and a non-Christian, okay? Um, although he allows separation for a time for the purpose of reconciliation and he commends singleness, okay? 
Um, now, verse 12, and I'll get into, as we, as we close here in the next few minutes, I'll get into what happens when two unbelievers get married, but then one of them becomes a Christian. Again, stay as you are. Remain married is what he says. But we'll get into that just briefly. But this verse, I don't want to not mention this. To the rest I say, verse 12, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever um, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. There it is, okay? So to the rest I say, not the Lord. What is he saying here? Is he saying this isn't from the Lord? Well, I think good, insightful commentary reads this as his saying what he did in verse 10 and then his rebounding off that. In, the, in verse 10, he says, the Lord says this, not I. And then he's basically quoting from Jesus in the Gospels where Jesus comments on, hey, don't get divorced. What God has joined, don't, don't let man separate. But then here he's talking about what happens in Corinth, you Corinthians, when two unbelievers marry and one of you becomes a believer. Should you divorce? Can we, can we get divorced now because my, my spouse is not a believer and I am? He's commenting on that. And he's saying, that was a saying of the Lord. This one isn't. Why? Because the Lord didn't have occasion to comment on that because people weren't being born again in mass and coming to Christ until Christ finished his work. But 20 years later here in Corinth, they were. That was happening a lot. We've had that happen in this church, okay? So, so the question is, they're saying, Shoot, can I get divorced? And he's saying again, consistently, no. Stay with that spouse because God actually considers your spouse and your children, even if only one of you is a believer, as holy. Not saved, verse 16 shows us that he doesn't, that doesn't mean they're automatically saved, but it does mean they are more likely to be saved because of your influence, and they're in a different category. In God's eyes, they're distinct. That's what holy means, they're separate. And so Paul says, stay as you are, and marriage is for life. Um, there's evidence in this text for, as I, as I close, I just wanna say this and then preach the gospel to you because I know it's been a bunch of practical stuff on marriage and singleness and not getting divorced, okay? Um, I just wanna say that there seems to be implicit evidence here and in Mark 5 and elsewhere, um, Matthew 19, both by Paul and by Jesus, that in extreme circumstances, if the covenant has been severed through adultery, or through desertion. And Paul mentions here, hey, if you're deserted by a spouse who's not a believer, you don't have to keep running after them if they refuse you and abandon you. Don't, you don't have to be enslaved, you're free. There's an implication there, also with the Lord, that there is freedom for someone who has been cheated on or left behind to remarry. I say this carefully, because there are godly men and women who differ on this, but I think when Paul says, you do not have to be enslaved if you've been abandoned, that there is freedom to remarry because that covenant bond has been severed. But if you can, here's the thing, guys, if you can, stay in the marriage, wait. I'm a, I'm a personal, I'm an, I'm, a, I'm an example of someone who has benefited tremendously uh, through someone not taking their liberty, not taking what, what they were conceded she was cheated on for years, but rather doing what she felt was the best, staying by her husband who had broken the covenant for years, my grandmother. He was cheating on her with a woman up in Dallas for years, and he got in a bad car accident coming back from seeing his mistress. And he woke up, and uh, he was in traction. And his mistress, I don't think he ever saw her again. She was gone, long gone. But guess who was by his side? My grandmother who for years 
had had this unfaithful partner, but she kept, and a lot of her Christian friends would say, leave this guy. And we've had examples of friends of ours, more than one, who've been through a similar situation, and the spouse decided to stay. And their Christian friends said, leave him, leave him, leave him. Do they have the freedom to by the Bible? Yes. Did they? No. And I've seen those families restored. And I'm a personal beneficiary of the fact that my grandmother stayed because their marriage remained, was strengthened. He became an elder in the church and, uh, and he was so grateful for the grace of God for him, the chief of sinners. And what he got was the gospel. And I'm a beneficiary and my kids are beneficiaries and all of you through me, I pray, are beneficiaries. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people, generations and generations and generations can be touched. Okay, now I finish with this story. I have a good friend who, he, he knew about some of our friends who were in this adulterous thing. They were married and she was committing adultery for years. And most people were telling her, him, the husband, who was committed to staying, uh, leave, including Christian friends. And now, did he have the freedom to? Yes. Did he? No. And my friend said, man, he, he said, I told my wife, if you ever do that to me, pack your bags. And I didn't say anything at the time. I was just processing it. But I, I said, I, I, sh- I thought later, would you want that to be her response to you? What if you did that to her? What if it wasn't her? What if it was you? And he could either say, hey, I would never do that. You know, if he said, well, in that case, yeah, I guess I would want her to stay. But what I think he would probably have said is I would never do that. In which case, he has shown right there that he has totally misunderstood the gospel. Because the Bible is clear. We have a whole book, the book of Hosea and the minor prophets in the Old Testament showing us that is our position. Because guess what, friends? Guess what, my friend who said that? You already have cheated on someone who is far greater than your earthly spouse. You've cheated on the living God who made you, get this, for himself. And rather than leaving you as he was well within his rights to do, you were on the auction block having prostituted yourselves out and me I'm in this too, to all of your false lovers that you and I run after. And the God who made you for himself, he came and he called out your name and he bought you back, what, at the price of his very self, his very son whom he sent to die in your place. And one of the things that I gave my friend who was sticking by his wife, I gave him a book called Whoredom. It's since been retitled, not the, not the, not the most attractive title, Whoredom, you know, didn't sell a lot of copies so they've sanitized it some. It's an exposition of the book of Hosea. And I gave him a copy, and I didn't want his wife to see it. She was the one who was committing the long-term affair. I didn't want his wife to see it because I thought she might think that was talking about her, but it wasn't. It was talking about him. It's talking about you, and it's talking about me. That's the, that's the true tale of the very word of God is that we have poured ourselves out to all of these false lovers. And rather than wiping us off the plate, God came down and made a way for us through his broken flesh and poured out blood. Um, And thank God he did. And that is the only thing, I think, that can be a true bedrock foundation for a marriage where one person has violated the covenant to understand that you too have violated an even more important covenant. And because Christ stuck it, and was pierced and torn asunder for you. You're free. You are dearly loved, and as we were singing, he will never let you go. 
that's all of our story if we are in Christ. And if you're not in Christ, you're lost. And I would beckon you to come home to the lover of your soul who's made a way for you through his own person on the cross. I'm gonna close with that. Um, Lord, I thank you so much for taking marriage, marriage so seriously that you have entered into a covenant with us that you've ratified with your own body and blood. And you will never let us go because you were abandoned on the cross in our place so we don't have to worry. We bless you for the gospel. We thank you for being that kind of God. In Jesus' name, amen.